Well, uh, we are coming to the end of First Peter. Uh, we went at, I think, warp speed through this book. So uh, I have a friend who's preaching this book in Hillsborough, and he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to spend half the year in it. I was like, oh, yeah, well, we're not. So um, <laughs> that sounds fun. Uh, but I'm really excited for a series to start next week as Lent begins this next, uh, on Wednesday. Uh, this next Sunday, we'll begin a Lenten series all the, all the way to Easter. So I won't tell you what that is. You'll just have to come, come and find it. So um, grateful um, to be finishing the book of First Peter as he walks us through these themes of uh, exile, that we're not at home in this world, uh, themes of identity that we are not what's done to us or what other people say about us. We are born again into uh, and through the gospel. Uh, and that there's this theme of hope. No matter what is happen- happening circumstantially, there is the hope of resurrection, Christ's resurrection and our eventual resurrection with him. Uh, and so in the midst of suffering, social alienation and trials, Peter is encouraging this suffering, persecuted minority movement of Jesus followers in the first century world to move from a victim mentality to a witness mentality, moving from this idea of I'm a cultural victim, oh no, bad things are happening, people don't like me, to bearing an accurate witness to Jesus and in a culture that is hostile to the message of another king, King Jesus. And so um, that, that is what Peter's doing. He's, he's moving us from that perspective, a victim to, to witness. And so um, I, I also think that what Peter's doing is he's attending to the reality that the church is a vulnerable thing. Have you ever noticed how vulnerable life is? Like, I mean, obviously, the last two years, if, if we didn't notice how vulnerable things are in the last two years, I don't think we're paying attention. Like, the entire global community came to a, a standstill, the impact of which we may not actually know in our lifetime, perhaps our children. Um, obviously, life is vulnerable. Things just can stop. Or perhaps the way relationships signal our vulnerability. Perhaps you've had a vibrant relationship and then seemingly like overnight or a mere period of weeks or even days, a relationship can go cold and you're like, you know, it just dissipates like a vapor and leaving you wondering like, what happened? Institutions are vulnerable, right? These institutions that were once pillars in a society are now only shells or non-existent. The truth is life is full of vulnerabilities. And the church is vulnerable. This community of faith in Christ is a vulnerable thing because it is a community full of relationships, full of people, full of sinners, and full of um, people who are a mixed bag of good and bad. And yet, here we are still talking about Jesus 2,000 years later. Like, we have no business talking about somebody who lived 2,000 years ago. And yet, here we are talking about Jesus who lived and died and we believe rose again and ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago. Not only are we talking about Jesus, there are various diverse expressions of the church all across the globe in every language talking about Jesus this morning. Uh, And so the church is therefore also durable. So what we find is this Christian community is this profoundly vulnerable and a durable reality. 
And Peter, at the end of this letter, is speaking to our vulnerabilities and to these factors that God gives over to help the church be durable. And so uh, this morning, I want to look, uh, move through the end of this book, looking at this provision God makes for the durability of the church in the midst of its vulnerability, a condition of durability, and then finally an admonition towards durability. So let's, let's look at the provision first. Peter, I think, is suggesting that in the midst of our vulnerability, God has provided uh, a, a, a means of durability through leadership. He says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. There's two Greek words uh, for one office of leadership in the New Testament uh, that basically means overseer, uh, shepherd, elder, person. It's a role given to the church uh, for primary oversight. Uh, Peter says the elders, so that's a plural community. It's not one person. It's a community of a team of people who take primary oversight for a church body. Uh, they are to be among the church, Peter says, which means this is not aloof people. It's people deeply connected, relationally involved in the life of the church, and then um, also witnesses to Christ, that Christ is the defining reality of their life and on display in their life, just like Peter. And they have this directive. This is this, is this provision for durability. In the midst of our vulnerability, says, there needs to be shepherds, and they're to shepherd the flock of God that's among you. The shepherding language is pretty interesting. We don't use a lot of shepherding language unless, uh, I know at least like one person here who's strongly agrarian, but I'm guessing the, mess, the rest of us are pretty like, you know, bought into the Silicon Forest vibes of Portland. I, I milked a goat once, and um, I'd prefer to never do that again. Uh, I think it wasn't comfortable for me, and I'm... I like lamb on a plate, so, um, but otherwise, I'm good without being around sheep. Uh, the reality, though, is that this is language that came right out of Peter's autobiography, because Peter himself had an experience in which he failed Jesus. He had a crash and burn moment in his faith when he stood around a fire while Jesus was on trial, and this little girl comes up and is like, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he says, no. It's like, no, I'm pretty sure I saw you. Not me, not the guy, right? And he denies Jesus three times, right? He just straight up says, I have no relationship with that man. Don't talk to me about this anymore. And then after the resurrection, Jesus comes and has breakfast with his disciples, and he addresses Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know that I love you. So he says, feed my sheep. And then again, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Right? Then feed my sheep. So Jesus restores him. In his three denials, Jesus gives Peter an opportunity to affirm his love and loyalty to Jesus three times as well. And each time, that love and loyalty towards Jesus is directed then to the proper outcome of that love, which is to care for Jesus' people. You can't say, I'm, I love Jesus and hate his people and, or be indifferent to his people. If you love Jesus, you love the things that Jesus loves. 
And Jesus loves his people, people that drive you nuts, that drive me nuts. And we admit it, and then we keep our love on Jesus, and the outcome is that we care for his people. And so Peter's just talking about his own experience with Jesus, that somebody who loves Jesus and cares for Jesus' people that Jesus calls sheep. And why does he call them sheep? It's not a compliment, by the way. (laughs) It's not like nobody ever says, I would love to be a sheep when I grow up. Like that's not, that's not an aspiration. Uh, Isaiah 53 is the other place probably where this language comes from. In Isaiah 53, we have this prophetic poem about the coming Messiah. It's the, the kind of the famous, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions passage. But one of the lines that Isaiah has in that passage is, he says, we all humans and Israel in particular, who is humanity on display in the particular, and it bleeds out into the universal. Uh, The reality is that we all have gone astray. We all like sheep, he says, have gone astray. So there's this innate thing in a human who says, I'm going to go find my own good. I'm going to leave what the shepherd says is good and go astray, go searching for my own thing. And so God's solution to this then in Isaiah 53 is he will become their shepherd. He'll take on their iniquities. He will bear the burden for their going their own way and be their shepherd. And then he'll give them shepherds who emulate the chief shepherd. So Emmaus as a church is this, uh, we've we've chosen to to be ordered as much as we can uh, approximate, uh, be ordered by the scriptures that say, Elders lead the church. And so we're an elder-led church. We have three of us right now, which is a task, uh, by the way, that needs a larger community. So for the last six months, we've been walking uh, with uh, nine folks through this process of like formation towards elders, being an elder, um, some of whom you'll have a chance to give voice to and affirming in the months to come. Uh, and so uh, it's not a rushed process. It's a very slow cultivation uh, of, of learning, training, testing, observing. But the reality is this, that leadership roles within the church can often draw those seeking power and influence and selfish gain. And so Peter is very quick to say, the elders shepherd the flock that's among you, and they need to be like this. He says, not forced, but willingly. It's not an obligation, but a want. Uh, not greedy, but eager to serve. This is not about what they can get, but what they can give. Not domineering, but examples to the flock. Not, I'm telling you to do it, so do it, but come follow me as I follow Jesus. That's the kind of person that Peter says should be shepherding the church. And when leaders live this way, it's a blessing for the church rather than a curse. And what makes that provision of shepherd leadership A blessing to the church is when they and the whole church do the next thing that the scriptures say in this context, uh, which is the condition, if you will, of durability. Uh, Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves with all humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he 
cares for you. This is pretty profound. Humility is needed in, for good leadership, isn't it? Nobody wants to follow an arrogant person and so, or, or community. Well, we, we seem to want to do that nationally, but um, right? when push comes to shove, though, right? like that's not, I don't think that's what we want. And so there is a humility needed to leading well, recognizing that I, I don't know it all, I can't do it all, and I can't be everywhere for all. But these are the frequent temptations of so many leaders in the church, to be omniscient, to have all the answers, to be omnipotent, to make it happen, to execute, to get everything done, to solve it all, or to be omnipresent, to be everywhere for everybody, to help everybody all the time. But proper humility for a shepherd understands that God alone is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, that we're finite, and we get things wrong and can only repent when we do. But otherwise, we do our best with all humility, which requires a listening posture, listening to God, self, and others. And it leads to serving for the good of others. But it also requires humility to be led well. To be led well also requires the humility to trust, to be patient, to give voice, but also to understand that I don't know everything, don't have all the facts, and also I need to relinquish control. And I, to those who are answerable to God. And so it's this condition for the whole body to live in humility, humility with one another, Peter says. It's, it's, the, it's the grease of the thing. Like we all can endure as a community if we're all seasoned with humility, is what he's saying. There's this condition. If we are people who are humble, God will exalt his people. And so that's on the congregation. It's on elders and it's the provision God gives to a vulnerable community. Look, elder, with humility, whole church, be humble towards each other. But uh, one of the things that we see is we're not only vulnerable because we're sheep, which is a function of our nature, like it's part of who we are as sheep people, <laughs> we're vulnerable to going astray, and therefore the provision for, for durability is shepherds who go, no, 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 don't go that way, come this way towards life, don't go that way towards death. Right? We keep, that's, that's the work. But there's another kind of vulnerability that Peter gets at. That vulnerability is not due to our nature, but due to our context cosmically, that there is in fact an adversary. Right? And so there's this reason for humility, this, this humility that says God's hand is mighty, and uh, which kind of puts us in our place, right? We're like, oh, okay, God, you're bigger than me. I want to be humble before you. But it's also profoundly humbling that God wants to exalt us in our humility. To think that the God of the universe would esteem you is profoundly humbling. Have you ever noticed insecure people are people who just have a lot of confidence in the wrong things? It's like you're full of confidence. It's just not in anything worthy of your confidence. And so uh, the, the reality of humility is it's confidence in the right things. Right? And, and to put confidence in God's mighty hand is profoundly important. He cares for us, the text says. Humility uh, comes because he's mightier on one hand, but he also cares on the other. He's not just transcendent and indifferent, but he's mightier and engaged. I, I just encourage you today that you are cared for by God that he actually cares about you. Some of us have this idea that like, God, yeah, he loves me, but I don't think he likes me very much. 
Peter says, no, look, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He actually cares. One of the ways that Peter highlights how much he cares is by using the language of God's hand. It's an anthropomorphism, an image. Uh, but it was with an outstretched hand that God rescued Israel from slavery. Right? They were stuck under an oppressive power. that they, they did not have the means to free themselves. And God, in his caring, outstretched hands, is the imagery. In other words, it's the idea of God's rolling up his sleeves to show Pharaoh who's boss. Right? And he's going to rescue his people. Or as Isaiah says, he says, Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why not be afraid? Because of God's righteous right hand. So no matter what you're going through, the Lord cares. And that matters a great deal in light of the next vulnerability that I want to talk about. The fact that we have an adversary. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by uh, your brotherhood throughout the world. So there's the vulnerability of our nature as sheep, but then there's the vulnerability of our context, that there's an adversary, that you and I, as followers of Jesus are people who have a target on our back. That there is actually a spiritual being who the Bible calls the devil. All right, this is, of course, one of the things that's likely to be ridiculed, of course. Because like, when we talk devil, we think maybe far side, right? And you think about like pitchforks and pointy horns, and, which is just not a biblical picture of spiritual evil. That's not from the text. That's from... Gary, what's his name? Larson. Larson, thanks. There you go. Which are funny, uh, but that's not good theology. And so be sober-minded, be watchful. There's a vulnerability to our context. There actually is a devil. Uh, and so we need to pay close attention to the, con to, to the way that Peter describes the spiritual realities, that if we're honest, our world is either far too infatuated with or far too ignorant of or ignores completely. C.S. Lewis, in his kind of masterful book on the spiritual warfare kind of notions of Scripture, he, he has this kind of fanciful, fictional take that offers a lot of insight. It's called the Screwtape Letters, and he, he describes kind of the, the mentality of the devil and his minions and trying to throw the followers of the enemy above off their game. And he, at the beginning of this work, C.S. Lewis says, look, there's two kinds of mistakes that people make. The first is superstition, which is overbelief. Like there's a, a fixation on the, uh, the devil, if you will. And then there's substition, like underbelief, like a, a, a minimization of spiritual evil. And so uh, spiritual entities are, even, are given too much credit or not enough. And um, I think there's this great line from The Usual Suspects where, um, oh gosh, what was his name? R uh, Roger Verbal, 
it says, you know, uh, as Kevin Spacey's character says, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. It's a great line. I think it's the only line that ever really gets repeated from that movie. Um, you can't really repeat most of the lines from that movie, at least not in church. And so the reality of a personal being who personifies evil was talked about more than anyone by Jesus himself. So you can't actually take Jesus' worldview and say there's no such thing as a devil because he actually talks about the devil more than anyone. It's part of his worldview. And we go along with the idea of a personal benevolent being, and culturally we're kind of conditioned to reject the idea of a personal malevolent being. So if we're being logically consistent, of course, I think we ought to make room for both. And so here's this being who Paul calls the prince of this world, the prince of the powers of the air. Why are we so vulnerable to him? Well, I would suggest first and foremost, we're vulnerable because of the issue of human sin. Uh, the fact that we're sheep makes us vulnerable. Uh, notice this, that, that Peter just warned about two pervasive sins, pride, make sure you're humble, and anxiety, worry. He's warned about these two things that I don't know the last time you were in a small group and somebody confessed pride or worry. It's not usually the thing, right? Usually we justify both. We have great justifications for why my worry is just um, a prayer request. Right? Uh, and yet we, just, we stay attached to worry, and we so often stay attached to pride. But he mentions both of these things in this context, and then talks about our vulnerability to this one called the devil. It's because the devil works by exploiting human sin and fallenness. And, and so if pride and worry, in this case, are the sins Peter's warning about, then it's no accident that the next thing that happens, he's warning against the devil looking for someone to devour. This same logic occurs in Ephesians 4 when Paul says, do not uh, let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, do not become bitter. Do not give the devil a foothold. Do you see the logical progression? I'm mad. I'm going to stay mad. All of a sudden, that's a foothold for the devil. That's the logic of Paul. And, and so there's this connection between our uh, giving ourselves over to sinful patterns or attitudes and the game the devil's trying to play. So Peter's saying, look, through pride and worry, you easily fall prey to the devil's game. We see that he works through the tendency towards sin, that the devil's game and the tendency towards sin are bound together in a particular way. So you can be very substitious, thinking, you know, there is no devil. You can be ignorant of his schemes entirely. Or you can be superstitious, always running around, constantly in fear, worrying that the devil's behind everything. Your transmission goes out, the devil's after you. Well, it could be 120,000 miles that got you. Right? Our last van... It was like notorious at 100,000 miles, it goes. And so now my kids on the road, when we see that model, my kids are like, good luck at 100,000 miles, sucker. And I'm like, oh no, what have I done to them? Um, I've, yeah, but what happens is we live in a fallen world where things break and things don't work as they should. So it's not always spiritual evil. So superstition doesn't play. And yet at the same time, do we understand that there's far more than meets the eyes? So overfocus on the devil is giving him way too much credit and distraction from worship of the triune God. And yet, 
substition, ignorance to the schemes, the wiles of the devil also leaves us vulnerable. And so Paul says, or Peter would say, look at pride as the problem, not the devil. See, the devil's always trying to do the same stuff. He's always trying to distract and dissuade the Christian from their communion with Christ. But the Christian has the ability to resist because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. I heard this metaphor one time, and I think it works. Um, We have a piano in our house that I wish we had a mute button on, but we don't. Uh, Most of the time, it's pretty cool. I'm like, oh, that's cool that you figured that song out. Um, But there's other times where I'm like, dang it, I can't mute that. Um, The truth is, about a piano, when you hit a key, right, like the strings are struck, right, Uh, and it plays this note. If the key's not connected to the string, no music plays. And I I think what happens for us is when we go, I'm mad and I'm going to stay mad. I look down on you, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to give myself over to this pattern. What happens? We're hooking the strings up to the keys. We're saying, devil play. Play your tune in my life. But... Right? When we stay alert and sober-minded, examined, resisting, those keys make no music right? in our lives. And so uh, I think that's a helpful metaphor. One, one of the also most helpful reads on spiritual warfare is this old, I think, 17th century Puritan, a guy named William Gurnall, who wrote a book called The Christian Complete Armor. Uh, it's an old treatment on Ephesians 6. It's br- brilliant and really not fun to read, but uh, you can get it for free on Kindle. I know like one of you will go out and download that. But he says this, if men hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, for they run, uh, and he says, they run for their life, but they carry the devil around in their very hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, you are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from pride, crying the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentments and your grudges, yelling the devil, the devil? Run from them in terror. You see Gurnall's point? He's saying, look, superstition isn't going to help you. Substition isn't going to help you. You have to realize that as you have a grudge and you decide, I'm going to stay mad in it, you're opening yourself up and you're the piano and he's playing chopsticks on your grudge. And so on the other side, of course, the substitious person who denies that there's any spiritual powers at all, they left themselves open to being exploited as well. The reality is it's when we look at the, the evils in the world, and we try to say it's only human problems that are going to solve them. It's a better economy. It's better, more therapy. It's a better education. And that will fix things. It doesn't work because it misses the complex nature of the problem of evil. The problem of evil is spiritual and human. It's structural and personal. The Bible is very clear that there's a webbed together reality that is complex and holistic. And the gospel addresses all sides of it. And so Peter says there is a devil and he has a game. What's his game? He uses the imagery of a lion. He says he's looking for someone to devour. Commentators suggest that there's at least an allusion to the devil being behind the powers of the Roman Empire, animating its brutal and idolatrous values. We can look around the world today and see the same kind of thing, that there are spiritual evils 
animating the structural things that we see. And so there's this encouragement to these alienated Christians that they're caught up in a cosmic battle. But the idea, just of very face value, that the devil's like a a prowling lion is the idea that there's a violent animal who longs to scatter, to isolate. That's his game. Sheep get afraid and they scatter. The devil just wants to devour. Can we look at the last two years, honestly, and say, like, that was some severe scattering that happened in the American church in particular. How amazingly Christians just were blind to the tactics of the devil. That his scattering work was on display as Christians were at each other's throats over masks and vaccines and politics. The devil had a field day, it seems, on American churches who, found, who were apparently easy targets for scattering, exploiting conflicts among Christians who perceived their momentary conflicts to be of more weight than the achievement and finality of the cross, which is a sad state of affairs. Because for the Christian, the cross overshadows and is more central over every conflict, over every sin, and over every aspect of life. And yet, here was this severe scattering. And so the way that shepherds and sheep deal with a local lion problem is that they stay alert. They don't go to sleep. They stay alert. They pay attention. Two admonitions here. Be sober-minded and be alert. It's to live such an examined life that you consider everything in your life. Consider what what am I consuming? What's coming into my mind? What am I reading? What am I watching? What am I streaming? What are the things that I'm allowing to influence and shape and form what I love and what I do, what I find to be true and what I'm aligned with? Does it fit with the voice of the serpent or the voice of the spirit? Does it align with God's word and the heart of Christ? There's this ancient practice. It's probably about a thousand years old at this point. It comes out of, well, probably less than a thousand, but it's a, it comes out of the Jesuit community of Ignatians who every 24 hours would practice this prayer of examine with four movements. Uh, just simply to look at the last 24 hours and go, God, Let me just note where I I noticed your presence. Can I just recall where did I experience the presence of God in my life? Perhaps if I haven't got anything to name, this is a great moment for me to take stock. I need to pay attention tomorrow. And then the second movement is to give thanks, to look at the last 24 hours and say, God, I, I give you thanks for everything I can, naming every gratitude and gift this posture of gratitude before the God who's present in our life. And then the third movement is to stop in prayer and mull over with Jesus, where was I cooperating with your spirit? Where were those moments of partnership where we were like connecting, I was doing your will, and where were those moments where I was resisting? I was kind of pushing down the voice of the spirit going, no, I don't want what you have. I want to go my own way. And then dealing business with God over that, repenting and saying, the fourth movement, tomorrow, moving forward. What, what do I want? How do I want to respond going forward into tomorrow? When we have a practice like this, we can be alert. 
We can be sober-minded, self-aware, aware of where are there footholds? Where am I giving the strings to the keys to be played by the one who only wants to steal, kill, and destroy? So Peter says, resist, stand firm in your faith. So we have this dark black golden doodle named Sirius Black. And um, don't judge me if you hate Harry Potter. My kids named him, okay? Uh, He is an amazing puppy, and he's 75 pounds, and he can pull, and his favorite game is what we affectionately call tug-a-fetch, which is you throw a thing, he gets it, he brings it back, and he wants you to tug, right? If you have a dog, you understand this game. Uh, And we have old hardwood floors. So my favorite thing to do is to try to get him to play tug-a-fetch on the hardwood floors because those little puppy paws are real slippery, right? They just, there's no traction. You can just pull them all around, and it's frustrating to him. It's really cute to watch puppy paws slip, but if he's standing on the rug, you're hosed, right? He's got you. He's got firm ground, and he can lock those puppy paws in, and you, now he's pulling you around. Um, the reality is we have no chance of resistance when what we stand on isn't firm. We can only resist a force stronger than us when we're standing on something firm. You're going to get pulled off your spiritual game if you're standing on any foundation that's not the foundation of faith in the gospel. If you're standing on your circumstances today, you're going to get pulled off your game because your circumstances change. They're in flux. If you're standing on how people view you, you're going to get pulled off your game. If you're standing on anything less powerful than the devil, you're going to get pulled off your game. You won't have the strength to resist, but the strength to resist comes from what you stand on. So Peter says, resist and firm in your faith. And it is the faith, the gospel faith, the faith of Jesus Christ that is firm. And because he's firm, our faith in him can be firm. Notice the two sins that Peter highlights when he talks about this devil that prowls like a roaring lion. Pride and anxiety. Why are they so spiritually dangerous? I would suggest to you that they are so profoundly dangerous because of how they function in our relationship with God. Pride says, I'm good on my own. Pride insists on my own righteousness. It's always self-justifying. It says, I will stand on my own goodness, my own performance, my own good work, my own good record, my comparatively better life than the people I like to judge today. Pride says, I have no need of God's grace. I don't need the free gift because I've brought something I've earned. Pride is the rejection of grace. And it works against the very way God wants to make us right with him. Pride's about our earning, not our receiving. Pride kicks off grace. It disconnects us from grace. And worry, anxiety, why is it so damaging? Why does it leave us so vulnerable? Because it lives like we're not loved by God. If pride lives apart from the grace of God, worry and anxiety lives apart from the love of God. It says, I'm not really loved. 
Pride says, I'm going to earn my way, cuts us off from grace. Anxiety says, I have, to I have to fend for myself, cuts us off from love. And so it's profoundly damaging. It cuts us off from the gospel realities, the love of God and the grace of God. And of course, the devil wants to cut you off from God's grace and God's love. He wants to cut you off from God's grace so you can give in to his favorite sin, which is self-righteousness. And to live like you're not loved, so you're left wide open and vulnerable to chase after other loves, lesser loves than the love of God. And so we're vulnerable, but the gospel makes us durable. The gospel alone, the good news, what Jesus has done, finished, good news. News is not advice. News is not a command. News is a report. This has been done. It's on offer. You just have to receive it and acknowledge it. And so because of what Jesus has done, he's lived a completely different life. He lived a humble life, so humble he became obedient to death on the cross. He lived a life, a non-anxious life, a life of peace because he knew who he was connected to. He knew that he was the Father's beloved. And because he knew who he was, he was able to resist already before us. He's the pioneer who goes before us, who resisted on our behalf and resisted perfectly all the way to the cross. And because he resisted all the way on our behalf, we can resist too. He's gone ahead of you. He's done it for you. And in him, you can resist the devil too. You, in Christ, can take a look at the bait and see the hook that the devil's always offering. And so we take comfort because we're not alone. Peter says, after you've suffered a while, the grace of God who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. See, that's the hope. Not your performance today, but the God of grace who confirms, establishes, <sighs> strengthens you. So as we receive this good news today, the church while vulnerable, is profoundly durable because of the grace and the love of God. And so we go to the table, this place where we recognize again and we reinforce through habit that we just bring the feasting. God supplies the food. That we just bring our bodies to the table and he supplies the grace. And so this morning... As we move towards celebrating Christ's victory over sin and death at the table, would you consider today, where is the place, where is the fight, where is the place of resistance for me? Where is the place of, as I examine myself, that I need to resist standing firm in the grace and love of God? Let's pray. Christ, you are all sufficient. As we recognize the very real cosmic battle that we are caught up in, you are the victor. And it is through the weapons of love and grace that we are victors today. It is through the cross and empty tomb that we find hope and victory. God, we want to be those who stand on very firm ground not thrown off by the enticements, the temptations, or the accusations of this devil, but standing firmly on the one who establishes us and strengthens us each day by your spirit, that is Christ our Lord. We come to his table feasting today. Amen.